today I'm joined by Ping Del Judice. Hey Ping, welcome. Hey Jess, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I think we were trying to get this going for a little while, but you and I, for one reason or the other, kept rescheduling and I'm really glad we were able to connect. Yeah, me too. It's happening. Let's do it. Awesome. So, you know, you're one person that I think we've had a couple of webinars together as a VP of RevOps and I always, you know, really admired your perspective and um, loved joining the webinars that we were on together. And today, I think we want to dive into, you know, data, sources of the data, truth. And I'm curious about, you know, your perspective on data as a source of truth. It seems like a cliche, but for a lot of folks who may not know what it is, how would you think about that? Yeah, the way I think about it is um, as a company, everybody needs to be looking at the same set of data, same source of data in order to make decision. You know, I can't be looking at one set of data because I have a different different definitions and then making proposal or making assumptions because of what I'm seeing versus, you know, Jeff, you might be seeing it from a different source because you have a different definition. And then we might not agree with each other not so much because we don't agree with our viewpoints, but purely because we're looking at different data sets. That's a problem. So I think there's a possibility of talking past one another, right? Like at, at the term level, like I might say churn to, you know, VP of marketing, and they might say the same thing to me, but they might be thinking it about it completely differently. For example, they might say, well, you know, deals that are brought in by marketing that have churned this year. I'm like, no, 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 I'm talking about in aggregate. And then there's another layer, which is at the technical layer, because some folks may not have access to the same data or they're filtered because they have a team view. And I, I think that's very compelling that at the end of the day, we do have to calibrate and make sure that we are bringing in definitions with one another, make sure that you know we're speaking the same language. Yeah. I'm curious, about the, I'm curious about the implications of that with your partners. You know, How do you fix that? Yeah, I think uh, the, the very first thing to do is to actually figure out what your buyer's journey looks like, um, making sure that everybody from marketing, sales, customer success, agree that these are the buyer's journey. And then from there, you figure out what the sales steps should look like, um, who should be involved, what the definitions for each of the stages. Um, and I, I like to do this whole buyer's journey CEP. Um, basically breaking it out at the top across the board. It's buyer's journey, right under that is the sales stages. And then it's a definition who's involved, entry criteria, activities within the stages, exit criteria. If you want to, you can add on what KPIs to track for each of the stages, um, what tools and technology you, you're using for each of the stages. But this giant document, you need alignment across the board. I think that's a difficult part, right? Because when you walk into a role, there might be a structure that's already in place and you might have to tailor around the edges. But I love the idea of, you know, developing a total roadmap, getting everyone's buy-in. And this is our map. When you bring yeah. in a deal into the funnel, everyone knows what part they play and what we need to do and then where the technology comes into play. That's really interesting. So, you know, with the, each of that, I think of the steps along your customer's journey, there's a like conversion rates, and how many of the deals that were in the previous stage made it to the next one? There's metrics in there that determine success or failure. You know, what do you think about those? What are those most important metrics as you're thinking about the journey? Yeah, I think at the top of the funnel, um, it should be number of MQ MQL, SQL, the conversion, the pipeline. 
um, of course, your MQL, you, be, you could be calling it something different. But again, going back to the definition, as long as everybody's defining it some way. Um, and actually, going back to what you were saying a little bit earlier in terms of having that map, 100%, that map is really important. And I just want to say, it is okay to have those definitions change because sometimes your buyer's journey could change. And if that were the case, you should, for the most part, redefine your stages to match the changes in the buyer's journey. So then when we take it back to the metrics, right? The SDR or the account executive or maybe an account manager or pre-sales, what are some of those metrics that you think are, are going to be key for, for, for those roles? Yeah, um, it depends on whether you are doing kind of the inbound or outbound motion or if it's PLG. Um, assuming it's kind of the SER AE role where it's more outbound, typically we're looking at meetings, right? I mean, of course, the volume of calls and emails are important, but then I typically don't like to put emphasis on those kind of numbers as, as long as the results are there. <clears throat> There's a qualified meetings, which means that sales are then accepting the leads from the SDR, assuming it's that outbound and the handshake there. Um, and from there, of course, you got to look at the conversion and for things that don't convert, and actually for things that do convert as well, you look at the why. So I think it's easier to fake calls or fake email activity volumes, but meetings, you can always verify meetings, especially in this day and age, you're recording every single call, recording every meeting. You can see that you know you had a scheduled meeting on the calendar. Did they show up? Did they not? And then you can see from there you know, how many opportunities you create, and you can have a clear relationship between you know, meeting your prospects, having those conversations, and then how many convert. And from there, you can start to have some really interesting coaching opportunities. It's, are we delivering our message the right way? Are we calling the right people? Um, are we calling at the right time? Are we, you know, there, there's certain things that I like to work with SDRs and AEs called golden hours. These are the hours where if you were to call, you have a higher propensity of folks connecting, you know, calling someone on their way to work. Uh, well, nowadays, of folks are working remotely, they, they might have more latitude to pick up. But you know, these are like tried and true lessons. And then you can go to the hours where you don't have high connection rates and shift your, your team meetings to those uh, th to those hours instead. So that way you leave the, the best calling hours to your team. Yeah, 100%. And, and speaking of that, something fun that you could do with the team, it's like, hey, every I'm making it up Tuesday between the hours of nine to 10, let's do a, you know, a, a calling campaign. We'll all do it together whether or not we're in the office together or we're all working remotely, but let's do it together. So true story before business school, I was, I was a seller and we would do the same thing. Um, there were some Friday afternoons where the manager, I don't know why we did it on Fridays. The manager would say, we're going to, we're just going to have a happy hour and just start dialing. I was like, this is a bad idea, but <laughs> have a beer while I'm calling, but okay, we'll do it. Like 4 PM and onwards. Uh, and, and the reason was a lot of folks were lived in different areas. And so traffic is horrendous in LA. So folks just stayed. And then a lot of us would kind of grab dinner or happy hour with each other afterwards. Uh, it was always kind of fun. But I love the idea of competition. We'd always have, uh, we'd literally have a whiteboard and we would we would mark down every single like um, meeting that we booked. And we'd run to the edge of the hallway and just start, you know, you know, writing it down and see who can get, uh, who can get the uh, largest number of meetings booked that afternoon. Yeah, totally. And ended up one or two. 
no gong. That's for deals. Like if a deal is one, we okay. use yep. But the whiteboard was for how many meetings did you successfully book? And then the next week you'd go have that qualification call or the discovery call. Did it work? I'm a competitive person by nature, so I don't like <laughs> losing. Um, I, I'm a bit of a psychopath when it comes to like not losing. So um, yeah, I love it. It's fun. <laughs> but yep. one thing, so that's real-time data, right? Like me literally running down the hallway and like writing it down. Um, one thing that I'd like to think through is, you know, you've operated at, you know, companies of all different sizes. And I always find that the larger the company, the propens there's a propensity to move the data reporting structure to a BI solution. And it, it involves a bunch of data intermediaries like data lakes. And you'll lose some of that real-time data that I think companies, you know, need uh, for certain situations. I'm curious how you think about, um, you know, the timeliness of the data, where should the data be? You know, we talked about source of truth and metrics and your, your life cycle. What does that look like in terms of its importance to the business? Yeah, I actually like having a data lake um, as the company grows, because I think that's one, I don't want to say easy, one good way to make sure that you can grow with as the amount of data grows. Um, I At one point I did take it for granted that data is in real time to learn that actually, hey, not everybody does it that way. Um, in sales, right, you have sales target and, and at least for me, my experience at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, it's always very exciting because you're basically watching that dial hopefully go up. Every minute counts, um, even at 11 p.m. I would be sitting in front of my computer refreshing the dashboard um, as much as possible as if you can put it in real time because people would then know like the whole competitiveness like I think human nature we want to hit our target we want to hit a number if you know how much you're away from that target you can then say all right I'm 20 grand away I have two deals one's at 15 one's at 25 let me focus on this 25 grand or hey I need three more deals I can still do it. I can still make it, right? That if you don't have that real-time data, that makes that a little bit trickier. I always think it's interesting, um, you know, when you think about getting the data uh, for, for quarter close, you know, that 11.55, I was just like having a heart attack. It's like, oh my gosh, like it's five minutes to midnight. I should be sleeping, but for some reason I'm up. I'm looking at the winds channel. I'm looking at seeing if I'm refreshing my report, my, my CRM report and see if something is going to come through. Um, and then, yeah, sure enough, I'm looking at our proposal documents and seeing if, uh, seeing if, if they viewed the document and if it's going to get, if it's going to get signed. So yeah, I'm, I'm always really nervous at that last hour. Yeah. And, and speaking of that wins channel, I love watching that channel for sure, but that data comes from ideally the CRM and ideally it's also real time. And I would be looking at late stages deals and I would reach out to the sales reps myself. Hey, do you need any help? What can I do? How What, what needs to be done to get this across the finish line? So yeah. when we talk about data, I think there's a pension that, you know, you want to operate in an environment of data to make sure that we have, you know, data driven decisions. We're not, we're taking the guess, the guesswork out of business, right? We're trying to take calculated risks. I'm very curious about, you know, what are those two pol the polar extremes, right? On one extreme, you have an early scale, early size business, uh, early stage business, and they don't have a lot of data at their fingertips. They're operating on intuition. So, you know, a lot of gut feel in terms of how they operate. And on the other extreme, you might have too much data or you're, you're very careful with your data and you're moving very slowly 
almost too slowly, perhaps. I'm curious, you know, where those two spectrums lie and how can businesses find the right pace for themselves to succeed? Yeah. Um, data is important. goes without saying, you know, I make a lot of my decisions based on the data that I see, based on historical trends and whatnot. Um, but as you said, often in very early stage startups, you don't have a lot of data. What do you do? I think we have to trust our gut and instinct sometimes. They, they can often be right, or maybe I should say they are often right from my own perspective and experience. Um, you definitely use what you have, you know, come up with a hypothesis. If you're seeing early traction or early success, keep going with it. Don't at the early stage, don't be afraid to break things and make mistakes as long as you learn from that quickly, right? Make mistakes fast, pivot fast. And there are so many companies out there who's done it before. You're not the first one. Go look at what, what other people have done, what best practices are out there. What can you learn from them that you can apply to your own business? Um, you know, that's when you don't have enough data. But going to the other extreme, when is potentially too much data? Again, I think sometimes you have to trust your instinct. If you have that sufficient data point that shows I can make this successful. In my opinion, there isn't really a need to write a 40 page essay to say, this is why I think we should continue with this project because I have looked at every single possibility of where things might go wrong. If it goes wrong, this is what I would do. Um, you know, it's like trust and what's the word I'm looking for? Verify and trust versus trust and verify in some ways. It's a fine line, you're right. So there's a concept that, you know, I, I was at AWS and Amazon's famous for writing one pagers, two pagers, three pagers, and to the extreme, the six pagers. And the idea is to make sure that you nail the decision correctly, grounded in data. And I think one could argue, well, if you did that for everything, you know, that you could probably really slow down uh, your decision making. But on the other hand, you know, writing presents clarity of thought and an opportunity to present transparently to other folks in the room and for them to ask questions. And I always think that, you know, one of the most important things I took away from that experience was the concept of a one-way door and a two-way door. Two-way door is an easily reversible decision. For those types of decisions, move quickly. For, you know, a one-way door where reversing is going to be very painful to the business and could cause significant harm, then maybe you do want to slow down and be extremely deliberate. So, um, yeah, I find that, you know, if you take if everything's a, a nail and you're just hammering it, hammering away at it with the same business methodology, the same framework, um, again, I think you you might be too inflexible. Um, you talked about learning, and I think it's interesting about forecasting or pipeline management. You know, I've learned from other people. Um, I've learned from teaching other people, and you've been a VP of RevOps, where I think you you might be brought in to you know you know take your expertise and really help scale a business. But then personally, you might also be thinking about, you know, growing and learning yourself because I see a lot of VP of RevOps stuck at VP of RevOps and you can't get past that. Or, or maybe, you know, the path above that is not as clear. I, I'm curious how you think about uh, your approach to personal professional development. And then at the same time, how do you balance the need to always deliver and perform with your years of experience? Yeah, learning is so important to me. There is so much I don't know out in the world. I want to continue to learn no matter where I land, um, I mean, VP or not, again, I'm human, there's so much to do, so much to learn. 
Um, one of the things I like to do is actually on LinkedIn. I follow you, Jeff. You put out a lot of um, interesting data points and you know thing, things that provoke me to think further, right? Um, and I like knowing, this, this might sound weird, I like knowing that I'm wrong because if I know that I'm wrong, I can get right sooner. Um, and, you know, learning isn't just from externally as well. Like I, I learn from my team constantly. You know, I've been so lucky. I've had some fantastic team members um, reporting to me and working with me. It's awesome. And there's also external opportunities, right? Uh, at my last job, I actually did a CRO school with Pavilion. So learning doesn't have to stop no matter where you go. Titles should be irrelevant. Yeah, I think that's key. I think it's interesting, the, the the sources of where you can learn. You can learn from the people that you hire, because quite frankly, a lot of those people can run laps around me from technical skills or process skills. They might see a problem from a different angle. And quite frankly, sometimes I, I bring in a perspective that worked for me at a different company, and it just may not work in the environment that I'm currently in. So, you know, getting someone to say, like, I like that idea, but how about this instead? <laughs> Um, and, you know, making my ears as wide as possible, I think, is a, is a superpower, is a good skill to have that I'm personally continually um, trying to hone in. Um, so, you know, thinking about that, if you were to, you know, I always ask this as the last question for everyone on the show. How do you think about, you know, if you were to travel in time and, you know, meet your younger version of yourself, what career advice would you give them? That's a good one. I like that a lot. Don't take myself so seriously. I mean, <clears throat> perfectionist, what is perfectionist, right? Um, I've always, in the past, as a younger ping, I was always striving for always the better. What's better? What's better? How can I get to be perfect? I like that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, take my work seriously, always, but don't take myself so seriously. <laughs> well, thank you for joining. I'm curious, if, for those who are listening, how can they learn and connect with you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Ping Del Judy Chair. Uh, they can email me if they want to or reach out to me um, on LinkedIn. I, I don't have Twitter or it's called X now. So I'm not that cool. Sorry. <laughs> I, call Twitter. I still call it Twitter for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ping. Thanks, Jeff. Catch you later. <laughs>